This is an audio presentation of God First Church, Cheltenham, England. A community of Jesus followers, worshipping God first, proclaiming God first, and together living God first lives. For more information, visit our website at godfirst.org.uk. Brilliant. Well, it is great to be here. We were a little bit worried at one point we wouldn't make it with the, with the weather. We had a 15-minute sudden delay around the Swindon area, got redirected. Maybe that's just Swindon. Strange things happen in Swindon. Uh, I want to speak this morning from the letter of First Peter. Uh, this is a fantastic letter. I really love this, this epistle. Uh, let me just give you some of the context. So um, the letter of Peter is written to churches in what we now think of as Turkey, and the way that Peter starts his letter is to the people in Pontus, Galatia, Cappadocia, Asia, and Bithynia. So those are all provinces in what we now think of as Turkey. And he's writing to people who were natives to this part of the world. They were born and bred in these regions and these cities, but their faith in Jesus Christ had caused them to start to feel some alienation in the worlds which previously had felt like home. They were now feeling like uh, foreigners in their own country because their faith in Jesus was causing them some difficulties, some pressures. It was creating problems for them, some of them in the workplace, some of them in their marriages, uh, some of them just in society generally. There's uh, some hostility towards them and some friction that was coming. And so Peter writes to the believers in these towns and describes them how he starts the letter to God's elect exiles, your exiles, your foreigners, your aliens, even though this this is where you come from, how it feels for you and actually how it's meant to be for you is a sense of some alienation. And um, this morning I want to think about what it means for us to be worshippers while in exile. The reality is that if you're a follower of Jesus, even if you think of Charlton very much as your home and you feel very much at home here, there is a sense in which you are called to be an exile, a foreigner, an alien, that you shouldn't feel too at home here. This is a challenge for us. I find it a challenge in my town. Uh, Paul Bournemouth, it's a great place to live. Uh, Cheltenham, of course, is uh, far smarter and more sophisticated than Paul and Bournemouth. But we do have the advantage of amazing beaches and we've got beautiful countryside and uh, the town is fun. And I can feel very, very at home in my hometown. I can feel very comfortable. It's very easy to get very comfortable in my town, as I guess it is here in Cheltenham. It's the kind of place where it's easy to be comfortable. There's a lot of lifestyle advantages to the place I live in, just as there is in the town that you live in. But if we're followers of Jesus, we should feel something of this sense of being foreigners in our own town, aliens, exiles. There should be sometimes that sense of friction and discomfort. Uh, And that's not a bad thing. That's actually exactly how it should be. If that is never there, that's a bit of a warning sign that we've kind of just gone native and we've blended and we're not being distinct as the people of God. And so I want this morning to think about what it means to be worshippers in exile, uh, to feel something of that sense of distinction and contrast uh, with the culture in which we live. So we're going to read from 1 Peter 2. I'm going to get Grace to come and read the scripture so you can meet her as well. I'm going to read 1 Peter 2, verses 4 to 10. As you come to him, the living stone, 
rejected by humans, but chosen by God and precious to him. You also, like living stones, are being built into a spiritual house to be a holy priesthood, offering spiritual sacrifices acceptable to God through Jesus Christ. For in scripture, it says, see, I lay a stone in Zion, a chosen and precious cornerstone, and the one who trusts in him will never be put to shame. Now to you who believe, this stone is precious. But to those who do not believe, the stone the builders rejected has become the cornerstone and a stone that causes people to stumble and a rock that makes them fall. They stumble because they disobey the message, which is also what they were destined for. But you are a chosen people a royal priesthood, a holy nation, God's special possession, that you may declare the praises of him who called you out of darkness into his wonderful light. Once you were not a people, but now you are the people of God. Once you had not received mercy, but now you have received mercy. Thank you, Grace. This is a passage which is one of my kind of life passages. If you, people say, what's your favourite verse or what's your favourite passage in Scripture? This would be the one, one of the ones I would turn to. It's a passage that really quickens the pulse and it makes some really significant claims. It makes some big claims and it really raises some questions about who Christians are. Are Christians different? Uh, that's really the claim of this passage. Christians are very different. So how are Christians different? Because the reality is <clears throat> we do the same kind of things that everyone else does. Uh, as Christians, we live life like other people do. We drop our kids off at school and we pay the rent or the mortgage and we go to work and uh, we enjoy the cultural and social life of Cheltenham or Paul and, and, and we just do the things that anybody else would do. And it is easy just then to get kind of flattened out in our faith, in our sense of who we are as followers of Christ. It's easy to fall into a place where uh, being a Christian can become really not much more than you live like everybody else does, because to be honest, most of the people in Cheltenham are pretty nice people, and we're pretty nice people, and we live like everybody else does. But on Sundays, we come together and we get a bit of kind of moral <coughs> and spiritual, <coughs> excuse me, spiritual input and direction, and that can feel like Sometimes that's pretty much all it is, and that's, a, that's not how it should be. When we read this passage, you don't see that kind of flattening out. There's something really distinct that Peter is describing here about who Christians are. And as he writes them, as they're experiencing an increased sense of exile in their culture, this sense of distinction to the world around them uh, is growing. These believers feel a sense of distinction from the world around them, even though it's their home towns, and so should we. And what this passage does is to really focus in on the question of identity. And actually the Bible, uh, so much of the time the Bible is focusing on, on, on this question of identity. Who are you? And why is that? And what does that mean? And uh, what Peter does here is to bring Jesus into sharp resolution. Jesus, we need to see who he is, and when we see who he is, we then see the reason why 
We are called to be different. And as Peter does that, he brings into sharp focus who then Jesus' people are, and then he brings into sharp focus how we as God's people are to respond. So let's think about those things. First of all, let's think about Jesus, who Peter describes here as a stone or as a rock. Jesus, the rock. Now, when I think of the rock, often the first thing I think of is Dwayne Johnson. Uh, That is not the rock that we are talking about this morning. Peter, actually, Peter's name means rocky. When Jesus met Peter, he wasn't called Peter, he was Simon, son of John. But Jesus said to Simon, you're not going to be Simon, son of John anymore, you're going to be Peter. And what Peter means, it means little rock, rocky. So it's like Jesus was calling his, this new friend Simon, he was calling him Rocky, my mate Rocky. And here Rocky talks about Jesus, the great stone, the great rock. And there's a number of different images and dimensions of Christ's rock-like nature that Peter describes in this passage. The first is he describes Jesus as the living stone. The living stone. That's, that's quite a strange metaphor because by definition stones don't live. Uh, Chelton is characterised by beautiful Cotswold stone buildings. Those stones are not alive. Actually the reason why stone is used in building is precisely because it's not alive and it endures. It lasts because it's not an animate object, it's a solid physical object which endures. Go to Stonehenge, not too far away, those mysterious stones which cause so much speculation and wonder. People come from all over the world to see them. I always think they must be a little bit disappointed when they get there, because when you get to them close up, they're so tiny. They look huge in the photos. But anyway, they've endured for thousands of years whatever they were there for, precisely because they're not alive. They're dead, they're rock. Years ago when I was a student, I used to sometimes in the in the holidays, work for a security company. It was very boring. I was in, my hometown was Brighton, and it would be things like standing on the door at conferences in Brighton, checking people's passes. But one spring solstice, they took us off in a coach to Stonehenge to, to guard the stones from the Druids. And I tell you, at 3 o'clock in the morning, there was nothing alive on Stonehenge other than me, and that, I felt barely alive. The stones are not alive. They're dead. But Peter here describes Jesus as the living stone. And what Peter's doing here is saying, look, there's something about Jesus. He's, he has the, the solidity, the permanence, the enduring nature of stone, but he's not dead, he's alive. I think when Peter wrote this, I, I wonder if he was thinking back to that great Old Testament story in 1 Samuel 7, when the people of Israel under Samuel, who was leading them at the time, had won a victory over the Philistines. And it says, Samuel took a stone and set it up. He named it Ebenezer, saying, Thus far the Lord has helped us. If you ever sing that hymn, uh, here I raise my, what's the song? Come Thou Fount. Here I raise my Ebenezer. And we go, what does that mean? What's an Ebenezer? Ebenezer that means uh, a stone of help. And, of course, the reason why Samuel puts a stone there and calls it the stone of help is it's, it's this enduring marker. Something significant has happened here, and we want a sign that will last for the ages. But he's thinking about God, who is their help. This stone, this rock, has helped us. Thus far, the Lord has helped us. And Jesus, in that sense, is our Ebenezer. He's our stone of help. He's alive, and he gives life to those who trust in him. Jesus is the living stone. second metaphor that Peter uses is to say that Jesus was a rejected stone. This was something which Jesus himself 
described in Matthew 23. We read about Jesus looking over Jerusalem and saying, Jerusalem, Jerusalem, you who kill the prophets and stone those sent to you, how often I have longed to gather your children together as a hen gathers her chicks under her wings and you were not willing. Jesus had come as the stone of help for the people of Israel, but the people of Israel were rejecting him. The imagery is like a builder choosing a stone and passing it over. Near where we live in Dorset, uh, sometimes see people uh, building and repairing the dry stone walls. And it's an amazing thing to watch somebody constructing a dry stone wall. They're absolutely beautiful, but they'll be a pile of stones, a pile of rocks, and they'll pick them up and they'll choose some and they'll reject others. And that's the picture we have here, that Jesus was a stone on which life was meant to be built, the stone in which life is found, but the people were rejecting him, looking at him, quickly moving on. And you have to ask, well, why? Because for those of us who know Jesus, we know that he's wonderful, he's beautiful, he's so patient and kind. Why would anybody reject Jesus? The reality is that Jesus is also offensive. Jesus offends those with power and prestige and Authority. Actually, Jesus offends anyone who's trying to do life their own way. Anyone who's trying to hold on to being their own boss. Anybody who wants to get to the end of their life and at their funeral have Frank Sinatra singing, I did it my way, played as their theme song. Jesus is offensive to that because he says you can't do it your way. You need to do it my way or you're lost. This means that he's a a stone not to be argued with because he's offensive and so he's rejected. And that's why Peter, in the next metaphor, describes him as a stumbling stone, a stone that people trip over. You know, there's not a spectrum of choices to be made about Jesus. When it comes to Jesus, really it is binary. Either you accept him as the stone of life or you reject him and you stumble over him as a rock of offence. He's not a rock you can kind of look at and decide just to navigate your way around. You either build your life on him, or you stumble and reject him. There's a story in the Bible about a rich young man who wanted to have Jesus, but also not really have Jesus, who came to Jesus and said, Jesus, I want to follow you. And Jesus said, well, that's great, but first go and sell all you have, and then come and follow me. And it says the rich young man went away sad. He wanted Jesus, yes, but also he wanted to hold on doing it my way. And Jesus says, you can't. You're going to choose. And that young man stumbled and tripped over the rock who is Jesus and then rejected Jesus to his own cost. Peter then says that Jesus is a chosen stone. Jesus is God come into the world He's the son of God who's precious to his father. He's the Messiah. He's the saviour. Jesus is the one by whom all God's plans and promises are fulfilled. Everything that God had spoken through the prophets of old, all put into play, all put into place by his son, Jesus, the Messiah. And this was a costly gift to give. We've sung with this this morning, the cost of Jesus coming to earth, the cost of his sacrifice, the cost of the cross. And the more something costs, by definition, the more precious it is. Jesus is the one who is precious to his Father. He's the stone the Father chose. He's the one 
If you build on him, he's the one in whom you find life. And so, the last metaphor Peter uses is that Jesus is the foundation stone, the cornerstone. Jesus Jesus is the cornerstone on which a house is being built. And it's always the foundation which determines the scope, the scale, the size of the building. Big foundations mean big buildings. Shallow foundations mean small buildings. Jesus is the rock, the foundation stone, the cornerstone on which God is building his house. So the question for us is, what is your life built upon? God is building upon this stone, upon Jesus. What is your life built upon? What is my life built upon? Are we building on the rock that is Christ, or are we stumbling, tripping maybe even rejecting him. There was a moment in Christ's ministry on the earth when he says to his disciples, who do you say I am? And Peter had this moment of revelation from God when he says, you are the Messiah, you're the Son of God. Peter sees Jesus is the rock, the living stone, the Ebenezer, the one to be chosen and not rejected. And uh, Jesus replies to Peter and says, I tell you that you are Peter, I tell you that you're rocky. And on this rock the rock of your declaration of who I am. I will build my church and the gates of Hades will not overcome it. As Peter writes this letter, he must be thinking about that encounter with Jesus and what Jesus had said then. And the point that Peter is making here is that everything is determined by Christ the rock. He's writing to these people in Turkey, he's writing to us saying, don't stumble over Jesus, don't reject Jesus, no, build on him. He is the foundation stone, he is the cornerstone, he's the one on which you can build something of substance and something that will endure. Don't reject him, treasure him. And this means there's a response for all of us out of what Peter writes here, for those of us who do know Jesus, there's a call again to make sure that our feet are set firm on the rock, that we're not getting swept up in the distractions and attractions of our culture, but we're remembering who we are, that we see, uh, we come and bring into sharp focus who Jesus is, see him as not just somebody, a thing that we come and give a bit of sing-song to on a Sunday morning, but no, the rock, the living one on whom we are to stand, the foundation on which our lives can be founded sure and certain. We need to get Jesus in focus again. And uh, if you're not a follower of Jesus, there's an invitation to you, a call. What are you going to do with Jesus? You can't can't have Jesus and have whatever else it is you're trying to build your life on. It's binary. It's it's either Jesus or it's not. What What are you going to do? Where are you going to build your life? Where are you going to find your hope? What's going to be your foundation? You need to get Jesus into focus. Second thing is to then see about Jesus's people. Jesus is the living stone, but Peter here describes his people as living stones too. And the imagery that Peter uses here is really beautiful. He talks about God's people being built into a spiritual house. Now, when this word house is used here, we need to, we're not thinking about a three bed semi or, or even a beautiful Cheltenham Regency uh, terrace. What we're thinking of is something which is magnificent. It's more, it's more like houses of parliament. We're talking about a palace, we're talking about a temple. And of course, that's the imagery that Peter would have had, the imagery of the temple in Jerusalem which was a physically impressive, magnificent, beautiful building, but more than just an impressive architectural building, the temple was the place where God dwelt. The temple was the place where priests would make sacrifice, 
Sacrifice was the means by which people were admitted into the presence of God. It was a sign that we know we're not worthy to come into God's presence. A price has to be paid. A sacrifice is made. That enables us to be declared clean. That comes to the temple. This is the center and the focus of our worship. If we're going to get close to God, if we're going to know God, we need to get into the temple. We need to get, because that's where God is. That's where God dwells. Now, Peter says, that's all changed. Now the temple, this spiritual house, is not a physical building, but it is made up of living stones, made up of people. Now God is dwelling in people by his spirit. There's a spiritual house. And it's so important we understand this, and we can so, even those of us who know it, we can quickly forget it because we so easily fall into notions of church as buildings. And we see, we've got them here in Cheltenham, beautiful buildings, impressive buildings, and we equate church and building with physical stone. No, what we need to see is living stones, a spiritual house, us. The church is not bounded by physical walls. The church of Jesus Christ comprises all the people of God. See, at the beginning of our service, we declared that in the, in the creed. We believe in the Holy Catholic Church, in the worldwide church. All of God's people, wherever they may be, comprise the house of God, a spiritual house. If we, when you get this, it completely changes your way of thinking about what church is. That church, it's not about a building. It's not about something you go to, but the church is what we are. The Apostle Paul says something very similar in 1 Corinthians 3. Don't you know that you yourselves are God's temple and that God's spirit lives among you? The reason that Paul says this to the Corinthians is that some of them didn't know or they'd forgotten it. Remember who you are. Remember, get Jesus into focus, see who he is, the chosen cornerstone, the rock, the living stone, And understand who you are, living stones, in whom the Spirit dwells. How do you think about yourself? How do you think about other Christians? We need to get a vision of the church, a a sense of peoplehood. What does it mean to be a Christian? It means that you are a living stone being built into a spiritual house. It's an amazing thing which is said of us. What a privilege You're a living stone being built into the temple of God. What Peter says here gets even more amazing because not only does he describe us as the temple, but also as the priests in the temple. He says that we we minister before the Lord. We're a holy priesthood offering spiritual sacrifices acceptable to God. In uh, the letter to the Romans, Apostle Paul kind of amplifies this, expands it a little bit. He says, I urge you, brothers and sisters, in view of God's mercy, to offer your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and pleasing to God. This is your true and proper worship. Do not conform to the pattern of this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind. Then you will be able to test and approve what God's will is, his good, pleasing and perfect Will. This sacrifice that Peter talks about and that Paul talks about in Romans, it's about a life lived in a way that honours Jesus. It's about having our thoughts and our actions oriented to a way that honours him. This is, this is our worship in exile, that we offer the sacrifice of our lives. 
What are we living for? What is our purpose in life? What are our goals? What, what occupies our thoughts? Where does our money go? Where do we invest our time and our energies? Are we doing it in a way that honors him? Is it a living sacrifice? Gets even more amazing these, in this whole chapter, which I would choose as a key chapter. For me, these two verses are the most amazing ones for me. Verses 9 and, and 10. You are a chosen people, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, God's special possession, that you may declare the praises of him who called you out of darkness into his wonderful light. Once you were not a people, but now you are the people of God. Once you had not received mercy, but now you have received mercy. This is an extraordinary summary of what Christians are. What do you get it into focus? How do you understand yourself, Christian? Who are you? This is how the Bible, how the Word of God describes us. What Peter's doing here is digging deep into the history of his people, the people of Israel, and into God's promises. And actually, what he does here is he takes two promises, two scriptures from the Old Testament, puts them together and applies them to us. It's amazing stuff. And uh, the two scriptures that Peter takes are from the period of the Exodus, when Moses had led the people of Israel out of slavery in Egypt towards the promised land, and for 40 years they were in the wilderness. And at the beginning of that 40 years, God speaks through Moses, Exodus 19, and says to the people, you will be for me a kingdom of priests and a holy nation. Who are you? Coming out of Egypt, coming out of slavery, who are you? You're going to be a kingdom of priests, a holy nation. And then at the end of the 40 years, just before they come into the promised land, in Deuteronomy 7, God speaks to Moses again and says, you are a people holy to the Lord your God. The Lord your God has chosen you out of all the peoples on the face of the earth to be his people, his treasured possession. And then you see how Peter puts those two verses together and applies them then to Christians. And these are people who had no physical descent from Abraham. They didn't belong to the people of Israel. They weren't Jews. They were living in what we think of as Turkey. But Peter says these promises that God spoke over Israel are now being worked out in you. Once this wasn't true, but now it is. Once you weren't in, but now you are. All the promises that God has made to his people are now being worked out in the church of Jesus Christ. Look at what he says. He says, we've been chosen. This is how actually Peter begins and ends the letter. The first verse says, to God's elect exiles. Uh, right at the end of the letter it says, the God of all grace called you to his eternal glory in Christ. We've, got, we've, we've been called. If you're a Christian, it's because God has called you. He's chosen you. You're elect. And it's that which gives us courage when things get sticky for us because of our faith. I guess all of us know what it's like not to be chosen at times. Maybe it was back in the school playground when you were always the last person to get picked when it was games time and they were forming teams. Or maybe it's been in a relationship when you haven't been chosen by the person you wanted to be chosen by. Or maybe it's been in the workplace when you haven't been chosen for a promotion which you felt you really deserved and should get. What Peter says here that if you're a Christian, you can have utter security because of the certainty of God's call on your life, his choosing of you. It's meant to put steel and courage in us. Who are you? You're chosen. It says we're a royal priesthood, 
It's an amazing thing because biblically, priests and kings couldn't be the same person. Priests had one role, kings had a different role. Priests had a special position of access to God. Priests stood between God and the people. It was priests who made sacrifices. It was priests who enabled the people to worship God. The king didn't do that. What the king did was to stand between God and other nations. He, the king represented God to the rule of God to his people and he was to protect his people from other nations who would attack them. But Peter says here that we are both. We're priests and kings. You will be for me a kingdom of priests. We've got this status of royalty. If you're a Christian, you've been adopted into the family of God. That gives you royal status. And you have the status of a priest that you can freely come and offer your worship and your petitions, your prayers to God without need of an intermediary. Christ is our intermediary. We come direct to him, a royal priesthood. And we are a holy nation. The Pharisees, that strict religious group around in the day of Jesus, they had this belief that if the whole nation of Israel could keep the law perfectly for one day, then God would break in and set all things to rights. The Roman occupiers would be overthrown and Israel would regain its global status and prestige. And so that's why, as you read the Gospels and the accounts of Jesus' conflict with the Pharisees, it's why the Pharisees are so urgent about strictness of keeping the law. We have to keep it because only if we keep it and if everybody keeps it, then we'll be holy and then God will come and rescue us. What Peter says to us here is that Holy is what we now are. That's an amazing thing. We're declared holy. I don't know about you, but cast your mind back over the past seven days and think about thoughts that have gone through your mind as they've gone through mine, which are anything but holy. And yet, what we're declared to be is holy. We've been made holy because God has chosen us, adopted us, Christ has died in our place, he's carried our sin and our shame, and he has declared us to be righteous. So even if you feel a bit mucky this morning, because of things you've thought or things you've done, the status of us as God's people is holy. And what we're then called to do is to live up to that declaration. We don't try and live that way in order to be declared holy. We're declared holy and then we're called to live in a way which reflects that. Peter says that we're God's special possession. We're his treasure. We're valuable to him. So much talk in our society about people struggling with low self-esteem. If you struggle with low self-esteem, the answer isn't to look inside yourself and try and work out how to feel better about yourself. The answer is to look to Christ and see what he says about you. What does he say? He says that you are God's special possession. That should raise you up, a sense of dignity and worth and value. And then Peter says that we have received mercy. We've been let off the hook. The parking attendant has let you off. The bank has waived your credit card debts. The judge has declared you innocent, even though you had parked in double yellow lines in Cheltenham during festival time and you should have been towed away and you have spent too much on your credit card and you have done something which you shouldn't have done. God declares you not guilty. God in his mercy has removed the the debt, the guilt, the fine, the punishment. And this mercy from God is available to everyone. 
all who build their lives on Christ the rock. It's life transforming to step into the mercy of God. So much better than our cultural, societal notions of fairness and rights and all the rest, or the way we try and govern ourselves, to, to receive mercy from God, to know the debt's already paid. It's a free welcome from God. It's liberating. Get Jesus into focus. Get into focus who the people of God are. And then last thing is that we are called to declare his praises, worship in exile. Having received all these good things from Jesus, there needs to be a response from us. We're to declare the praise of God. This is what we've been called, what we've been chosen for. You are a chosen people, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, God's special possession. Why? That you may declare the praises of him who called you out of darkness into his wonderful light. This should be the most natural thing for us, but it can be immensely challenging out in the world. Uh, I've been reading a book called Evangelism as Exiles by Elliot Clark. I'd really recommend it. He says this, Praise is the most natural thing in the world for us, and we do it all the time. We brag about our favourite sports team. We rave about restaurants. We shamelessly tell others about the deals we find online. We can't stop talking about the latest Netflix series or our last vacation. We adore musicians, endorse politicians and fawn over celebrities. We promote our kids' school and post about our morning coffee. I mean, that's Cheltenham in a nutshell. <laughs> Boasting about your kids' school and posting about your morning coffee. That is Cheltenham. We sing the praises of just about everything, even gluten-free pizza. But ask us to raise our voices in praise to God outside of weekend worship. And we struggle to string together a whole sentence while we, and I include myself here, and this is so challenging to me, I include myself here, demonstrate an incredible ability to proclaim the glories of endless earthly trivialities. We somehow stutter and stammer at the opportunity to speak with others about our heavenly hope. So it's obvious our gospel silence isn't because our mouths are broken. It's because our hearts are. Because if we worship God as we should, our neighbours, co-workers and friends will be the first to hear about it. That kind of hit me like a dagger in the heart. It's so challenging. It's easy in here. It's easy at my church on Sunday mornings to sing and shout about who Jesus is and what that means for me and for us, but what about out there in the world? Out there in the world, it's a different story altogether. And uh, something I'm personally really feeling the challenge of God in for, for me personally and trying to lead my church in is that we should be more faithful in declaring the praises of Jesus Christ yeah. out in the world. You can't just wait for opportunities. I've been, you wait for opportunities to speak about Jesus. They tend not to come. You don't have to make them. And I'm not very good at making them, and I feel so challenged by this. We need to be, I need to be better at speaking about how good Jesus is outside of church meetings. Elliot Clark says this, If evangelism doesn't exist, it's because worship doesn't. What he's saying is, maybe the reason we're not seeing more people build their lives on the living stone that is Christ is because we're not praising the living stone that is Christ enough. Maybe it's because we're not pointing people to Christ the rock because we don't ever speak about him. We do church and then we go to work and somehow the two 
often don't connect and collide. Maybe we're not seeing more people coming to faith because we're not praising enough. Jesus is the living stone. We're a living temple and we're called to declare his praises. In my town, it's the people of God, living stones being built into a spiritual house. Our call is to declare the praises of Jesus. There's great lifestyle advantages to living in Paul and Bournemouth, but people need to know Jesus. There's huge benefits to living in Cheltenham, but people even here need to know about Jesus. If your life isn't built on Christ the rock, in the end you're going to stumble and you're going to fall. How will people see Jesus? They'll see who Jesus is when they see who we are, when we see who we are, and when we declare his praises and point people to him, our saviour, the Messiah, chosen, precious, eternally faithful, good and true. Let's pray. Lord, I pray for my friends here. I pray even with the name of this church, God First, what that name uh, states, implies, demands that we would put God first in our lives and that we would declare your praises. I pray that for this church, a God First church here in Chelston, that it would be a, a praising of you. Yeah, I pray for praising of you Sunday mornings, midweek groups, Christians gathering together. I pray for that, Lord. But I pray there might be a declaration of you out of, this, out of these living stones into the world around. Lord, all the different parts of this community, this town, which members of this church touch, may there be a declaration of the praises of God. May we, may we have in sharp focus who you are. And may that bring into focus who we are. And may the miraculous wonder of that cause us to open our mouths and proclaim your praises and call people to follow you. Ask this in your name, Jesus. Amen. For more information, visit our website at godfirst.org.uk.